Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Well, welcome again to Challenge. Excited to be up here and getting to share with you guys. Um, Real quick, how many of you guys grew up taking like vacations with your family? Okay, good number. What are some of the places you went? Just shout a couple out. Okay, I didn't hear any of that. That was like a fail, big time. Walmart. I heard Walmart. That's a good... Legoland? Did I hear Legoland? Okay, yeah. Awesome. What was that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so yeah, vacations, right? So my family and I, we didn't do like a lot of fancy vacations. A lot of times we went to uh, Kansas City and we'd, we'd camp out and had some fun adventures, run around the creek with my brother and catching like daddy long leg spiders and all that kind of stuff. It was fun. But we did take a couple big trips. One of them, when I was five, we went to Hawaii. Uh, my my uh, uncle lives in Hawaii there. So we went and visited him. We went to the Grand Canyon, um, been to Colorado several times. But um, I've got some pictures up here. This is uh, me. I'm the smallest one. Uh, there's the big station wagon that we drove. So we didn't have to have seat belts when I was a kid. So we'd just goof around in the back of the station wagon. And actually, in that station wagon, I think it was that trip, my sister elbowed me in the stomach and I barfed all over the back of the station wagon, like, and we had a long ways to go on the trip, so it was, it was pretty bad, but you can see, like, we took pictures. One of the things we would do is we would take pictures of these signs, right? So when we crossed the state line, we'd get out and take pictures. It's kind of fun. When we got to Loveland Pass, we'd take pictures. I know when we went to the Grand Canyon, we'd stand by, there's this sign about the Grand Canyon. I couldn't find that picture, but we did it, and it was really fun. It's good memories, right? We like to take pictures of those things, but what would it be like if like when my parents said, hey, we're going on vacation, let's pack up the car. You can see the big thing on top of our station wagon. We'd wrap it up. And uh, it's like the Griswold family vacation or something, you know. And uh, so <clears throat> we'd go there. We'd, we'd spend all this money on gas. We'd eat all this food. And we'd get to the, the sign of the Grand Canyon. We'd like, awesome, let's take a picture. This is a great sign. We pose. We take pictures. And then we get back in the car and we leave and go home without ever looking at the Grand Canyon. That'd be kind of weird. Or if we went to Loveland Pass and we like took a picture of the sign and like, yeah, this was awesome, but we never took a, a scan of the rugged Rockies or looked over the vast valley you can see from the pass. It would be ridiculous. Why would we spend all that money, all that time, all that energy to just go take a picture of a sign and go look at another sign and go look at another sign, but never look at what the sign was pointing to? to marvel at the wonder of the Grand Canyon, or things like that. We'd think it was foolish and a waste. Well, tonight we're going to look at a story in John chapter 6. If you got your Bible, open it up. And we're going to talk about a group of people who did just that. They did that very thing. And we're going to see that we can easily do the same thing as well. We just recently started last week this series called Behold, with the tagline, I am not, but I know I am. And if you remember that, that I am is the personal name of God. If you remember, Robbie talked about Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is called to release the Israelites from Pharaoh through the parting of the Red Sea and then lead them through the wilderness and, and the manna and all that. We'll get to that in a little bit. And 
Moses is like, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm not big enough. I'm not good enough. And Moses, or uh, God says, yeah, you're not, but I am. And he reveals this name, I am who I am. And if you remember, Robbie talked about this. This means that he is a self-existent God. He's self-sufficient. He's eternal. He's limitless. And as Moses examined that he's weak and small, God said, you're right, but I am, and I am with you. And so that painted the backdrop of this idea of the I am, the name of God. And so now for the rest of this series, we're going to be going through the gospel of John, and we're going to be walking through what are known as the I am statements. Jesus identifies himself as the I am. He uses the same words used, uh, except in the Greek, for that name that God revealed himself to Moses as. But now in the Gospels, it's like he ties that name to some imagery. You know, when you hear I am, it's kind of a fuzzy, nebulous idea. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around I am. You know, what, what does that mean about God? And so Jesus comes and he says, I am, but then he pictures some images with it. Like, I am the bread of life. And he puts some flesh on the bones of that idea of I am so we can sink our teeth into it, so we can, we can look at the glory of God and understand him and know him more. Or maybe I am the light of the world, all these things. And so he's trying to help us know who I am, who he is by some of these images. And so we're going to do that. We're going to walk through all these statements and hopefully get a better picture as we behold the glory of Jesus as the I am from the Gospel of John. And so one of the fun things we're going to do in this series before we get into the text is where every week we've asked some students to do some form of artwork. It doesn't matter what medium it is, but you can see over here we've got a painting and a loaf of bread. And so we're asking someone every week to do a piece of art, something like that. And so um, it's kind of fun. So this piece was done by uh, Mariah Simpson, and it's a watercolor and ink, and it's really cool. If you get up here close and look at it, it's pretty awesome. And she wrote a little description. One of the things, my favorite thing she said was she wanted these similar warm tones. You look at the colors between Jesus' hands and the bread, they're really similar. And she said she did that because she wanted to underline the reality that he is the bread of life. Isn't that a cool thought that she did? And, oh, I guess, right there. And then, um, so that's awesome. And then Sarah Nutter also baked this bread. I think it's sourdough bread, but look at the cool design and artwork on the side of it. I mean, just so we can get the imagery of this bread of life, this sustaining power, satisfying weight of the bread. And so each week we're going to have these up here uh, just so we can meditate on who he is. And then each following week, all the pieces of art are going to be in the foyer with a little description. So we'll have a little art gallery in the foyer out there. It'll be pretty fun. So um, thank you guys for wherever you are for doing that. It uh, really adds to tonight. So you can always think of that as we're talking. So we're going to dive into John chapter 6. And like any good narrative, there is, there is structure to a passage. So a narrative, it's got your setting, it's got the conflict, it's got the climax, and it's got the resolution. And so when you're thinking about reading a narrative like the Gospels, that's what you're kind of looking for, those flows of thought so you can understand what is the author trying to help us see about Christ. And so we're going to get to the setting. John chapter 6, verses 1, to, 1 through 25 is kind of the backdrop or the setting of the main action. So we're going to fly through some of this because there's a lot of text. And so Jesus, and we see he's gathered this great crowd of people. Uh, they follow him, and it says they followed him because of the signs 
that they had seen him perform, namely healing the sick. So they're starting to follow him because they saw some signs. And then it says the Jewish Passover was near. And that was a big thing to the Jews. It was like our 4th of July on steroids. It was their Independence Day. It was when they were freed, just like Exodus 3, when they were freed from Pharaoh through the parting of the Red Sea. And then the wandering through the wilderness. And so, you know, in Christmas, we meditate on Luke chapter 2. Right? We read it every year. We meditate on it. We can talk about, oh, you know, all these things from Luke chapter 2, the angels, the shepherds. Well, of this, the things they talked about were revolving around that. Wandering in the wilderness, being fed the bread, the manna in the wilderness. They would have been thinking about these things. And that's the backdrop of what's happening here. And so Jesus, this crowd's following him, and Mark's account, he said he'd been teaching all day, and the crowd is hungry and weary, and so he looks at his disciples, he says, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? So there are 5,000 guys, so you figure in the wives and the kids, there's probably about 20,000 is our best estimate. Where are we going to get, uh, where are we going to buy all this food? Philip kind of freaks out, he's like, it's going to take more than a half a year's wages just for everybody to get one bite of bread. We can't do it, one bite, a half a year wage. And so Andrew, he's a little more practical. He's been looking around. He said, here's, here's a boy. He's got five small loaves of bread and a couple fish. But, but what is that for the crowds? Familiar story. But then Jesus says he takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and he begins distributing the bread to those who were seated. And catch this. In verse 11, he says, he distributed as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And then in verse 12, when they had had all, when they all had enough to eat, there's something we need to pay attention to. Jesus abundantly satisfied their hunger. And we see that because after they'd all eaten what they wanted, then he gathers around, the disciples says, get the baskets. They fill up 12 baskets of leftovers of 20,000 people. He'd fed all they could eat, satisfied their hunger, overflowed abundant satisfaction of their need. And so they gathered up the leftovers, and then it says, when the people saw the sign Jesus performed, um, they said, surely this is the prophet who had come into the world. And Jesus knows their intention. He, wants, he thinks they are going to start a political revolution to make him king by force. And so he withdraws, dismisses the crowd. Then in verse 16, uh, there's, there's kind of this story. They go across the lake. Jesus walks on water, all this stuff. And the crowd wakes up, and they're looking for Jesus. They thought, oh, we had all this food. We want to find Jesus. They can't find him, so they all rush in these boats, go across, find out where he's at across the lake. And this is where the setting kind of ends. They come to Jesus, say, how did you get here? Or when did you get here? So that's the setting. It fed abundantly their hunger. And so now, they ask Jesus this question like Jesus often does. He doesn't really answer the question. He just kind of dismisses it, and he says in um, verse 26, well, first, now we're transitioning to the conflict. So that's the setting. Now there's the conflict, and the conflict revolves around this. So what is the sign pointing to? That was a sign, that, that miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fish. That was a sign. We're not just to marvel at the sign, Right? We're supposed to marvel at what the sign is pointing to. And so this is what the conflict kind of surrounds around, is what is the sign pointing to? And so Jesus, instead of answering their question in verse 26, he kind of turns the question on them. He questions their motives and their goal of why they're seeking him. 
So anytime you see that very truly, I tell you, that's an emphasis. Jesus is emphasizing something. He's emphasizing you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And then he challenges them. He says, don't work for this food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was like preaching here and then I left and I went to another town and the next day everybody was looking for me and chased me down and was like, where have you been? I'd be really excited. Be like, man, God's moving. There's some cool stuff happening, all this stuff. Jesus just doesn't seem too excited about the gathered crowd because he can see into their heart. He can see their motives for why he's pursuing them. And so when he sees that they're chasing him down, he challenges them. He says, you know, what you guys really are is your sign chasers. You're just chasing signs, like the vacation illustration. They're just going sign to sign to sign, but they're missing the majesty that the sign is intended to point them to. They saw this sign of healing, the sign of multiplying the bread, and, and the result is we want more signs. And Jesus says, you guys are missing it. You're missing the point. You're in awe of the sign, but you're missing what it's pointing to. And so he tells them their motive and their goal of seeking him are off. Stop chasing after these temporary, material, earthly things and seek what lasts, eternal life. If you look back at the setting in verse 14, they, they seem to have gotten at least a little bit that the sign was pointing to Jesus because they said when they saw the sign, this must be the prophet. And this was prophesied way back in the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this is a, a prophecy about what's going to happen. So Moses is talking in verse 15. He says, the Lord your God, Lord, that's that word I am, Yahweh. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And here's the deal. You must Listen to him. Verse 18, God is emphasizing the same thing. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And then here's the thing. God himself is going to hold everyone accountable who does not listen to the words that the prophet speaks in my name. So they got the right information. Jesus was the prophet, but they got the wrong application. Instead of chasing after more signs, they were to listen to Jesus and get in line with Jesus instead of um, trying to rush a, a uh, political revolution. Because in verse 15, it says they want this political revolution. Can you sense it? They've been under Roman oppression. They've been waiting for this prophet, this, these new days, and they've got 5,000 men. And all of a sudden, they realize this is the prophet. They start rallying up people. We could do a revolution here. We could kick out the Roman government. We could have freedom from oppression. We could have power, influence, what we've been longing for this whole time. That's what they were wanting, temporal, earthly things that they think Jesus could give them. And then in verse 26, he's like, not only are you just wanting political power and influence, you're wanting a free meal ticket. You want the life of ease, the life of comfort, where you're not having to work your farm, you're not having to make your bread, you just want a full belly from me. That's why you're following me. 
says, it looks like you're chasing hard after me, but really you're just chasing after those things. I'm just the conduit of those things. So he challenges them. He says, stop working for those things that spoil. If you eat that bread, guess what? Tomorrow you're going to get hungry. It's not going to satisfy. He says, don't work for what spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's challenging them. The things you're looking for, the things you're chasing after are too small. They won't last. Seek me for something bigger. So before we move on, I just want to ask a question. Why are you pursuing Jesus? Why are you pursuing him? Jesus told them, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because blank. Fill in that blank for your life. What are you pursuing him for? Is it relief from pain? Is it a life of comfort and leisure? Is it answers to questions? Is it good grades? Is it popularity? Is it a future spouse? Is it a great job in the future for a comfortable life? Is it great friends, popularity, dating relationship, whatever it is? Are you seeking Jesus to give you those things or are you seeking Jesus himself to satisfy? He's challenging us not to be a sign chaser, but to let the sign point us to the majesty of who he is. So why are you following him? In verse 28, they kind of miss it again. He's just challenged them. Stop working for these uh, temporary things. Work for the things of eternity. And so they latch on to this idea of working. And they say, okay, great. So what are the works we've got to do that, Jesus, that God requires? And so they're kind of missing it again. Jesus is trying to tell, help them see the goal is me. And instead, they start thinking about works. And they start thinking, you know, that's not that hard. It's not that hard. If you give me a list of rules and what I can't do and what I can do, I can do that. I can please God. I can get salvation. And so Jesus is like, you guys are missing it again. He's, he's patient with them. He's helping them understand. He says, okay, the work of God is this. Here's what you have to do. Believe in the one he has sent. That's your work. Believe in the one he has sent. Jesus says, you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn salvation. Romans 3 says we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 says we are all dead in our sin. We cannot work enough to please God and earn salvation. He says the work is that we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the one who did the work for us. And then we believe in him. Now, I want to talk about what that word believe is. It happens over and over and over again in John. And when I was a kid, my pastor in seven years old, I mean, he went to his office and he said, hey, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And I said, yeah, I believe it. I believe it's true. Do you believe he rose from the dead? And I said, yeah, I believe it. He said, you're, you're a believer. You're, you're a Christian. That's not Agreeing to a fact is not the belief that John is writing about here. It is trust. It's not intellectual agreement. It is I believe and I trust in him. And that means I surrender to him. What he says is good. What he says is trustworthy. And so I surrender my life to him. 
That's what he's talking about every time he says believe. So he says the work is to trust Jesus and to surrender to him. And so again, they're just struggling. They're trying to figure out what he's talking about, and they go back to this idea of signs. They're like, okay, that's great. What's the sign you're going to give us that we can see it and then we can trust you, that we can surrender to you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they quote a couple scriptures there. It's like, I grew up, Janet Jackson was popular. Did anybody know Janet Jackson anymore? You know, the song, the song, What Have You Done For Me Lately? That's what they're talking about right here. It's like, you just, we just saw you heal all these people. We just saw you multiply 20,000 uh, uh, loaves of bread so we could all eat to our fill. But you know, what are you going to do so that we can trust you? I mean, that was like the day before. But what are you going to do so that we can trust you? Again, they're exposed as not only a sign chaser, but kind of a demanding a sign. They've seen all these things. How much is it going to take for them to trust him? And for a sign demander, it is always one more sign. If you're a sign demander, you always demand that he will give another physical evidence, another material blessing, so that you can trust him and surrender. And if he doesn't give that thing, you walk away because he hasn't earned your trust. They were demanding so that they would trust. And they give this manna, it's this Old Testament illustration. When they were freed from slavery through the parting of the Red Sea, they wandered for 40 years and God every morning provided these flakes on the ground and they would go collect all these flakes and they would bake bread from it in order to have food for the day. Every morning for 40 years, God sustained them through the wilderness. And so now they're telling Jesus, okay, you're the prophet that's better than Moses, so you got a better sign than Moses, right? You got you to pony up the next sign that's going to be bigger than the one Moses gave us. And again, Jesus corrects them. It's not Moses that gave it to you. It's our father. And actually, our Father is giving you the living bread right now in the present. That's verse 32 and 33. It's the Father who gives it, and it's right now. And you can just see him kind of like, oh, yeah, here it comes, man. It's not just going to be manna. This is going to be awesome. Then we're going to have the better sign. And so they say, give us this bread always. They're thinking free food, free buffet, pizza ranch, all the days of our life, all that we want. They're excited. That's what they think the sign is pointing toward. And then in verse 35 and 40, Jesus tells them, he says, I am. That, that word, Yahweh, or ego eimi. I am the personal name of God. I am the bread of life. It's me. The sign of me multiplying that bread is pointing to me. The sign that fulfilled your hunger in an overflowing abundance points to me. I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me, trusts in me, surrenders to me, will never be thirsty. It says, the sign is pointing to me. But as I told you, you've seen and you don't believe. You don't trust me. 
You won't surrender because their hearts were hard. Verse 40, he says, it's my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him, who trusts in Him, surrenders to Him, will have eternal life. Life here and now. And I'll raise them up at the last day. Everlasting, resurrected life. He's like, I'm the bread you're longing for. All the longings you have, I'm the satisfaction for it. I am the one who will abundantly satisfy your longing of your soul, but it's only when you come to me with trust and surrender. I'll give you life here and now and for all eternity, but it comes through trust and surrender. And you think, wow, they're expecting this meal, and in verse 41, they start complaining. It's kind of funny because in the days of manna, all their ancestors grumbled and complained all the time. They're kind of living up to their namesake. They're grumbling among themselves, and they're like, wait a minute, he's saying he came down from heaven. We, we knew him as a boy. We knew his parents. How can, he, how can that happen? They're grumbling and complaining, so Jesus just calls them out. Stop grumbling. It's kind of straightforward. Just stop grumbling. And again, he emphasizes, very truly, I tell you, in verse 47, the one who believes trusts, surrenders, has eternal life. I am Yahweh, the bread of life. He's putting flesh on the I am. That self-existent, limitless, eternal, powerful God can satisfy your deepest desire abundantly if we surrender and trust him. That's putting flesh on the I am. This conflict and tension has been rising. The sign of that abundant filling of their hunger is pointing to Jesus as the one who satisfies. There's an invitation and a warning in this passage. Jesus is inviting you, inviting me to trust him, to give wholehearted surrender to him. And when we do, we receive life. We receive abundant satisfaction, both here and now and for eternity. But the implied warning is if we do not trust, if we do not give surrender, if we have unbelief, we will not have life. We'll be going from thing to thing, trying to suck life out of people, trying to suck life out of things, trying to draw stuff that is not going to fill our souls. And we will not have life satisfaction here or for eternity. So the, the conflict is what is that sign pointing toward? It's pointing to Jesus, the satisfier of our soul. Like if you ate that whole loaf of bread, you'd be so full, right? So satisfied. Jesus says, I'm going to do that for you if you trust and surrender. And now we get to the climax of the story. And Jesus has been trying to get them to understand, if you come to me, if you believe in me, I'll give you life, and I will raise you up at the last day. And now he gives this metaphorical explanation and gives a response to the sign. Jesus told him clearly in verse 40, and that's an important verse, verse 40, whoever looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up at the last day. He said it clearly, but they're not getting it. And so 
He uses this language device that is pretty common among the prophets and even apocalyptic, that's a hard word to say, literature like Revelation where they use this shocking imagery to get people's attention so they might see the truth. So he's like, okay, plain, straightforward language, didn't get it, so now I'm going to ratchet up some metaphorical language. And so he starts turning on the heat of metaphors here. He says, okay, you guys talking about manna. Your ancestors, your ancestors ate the manna for 40 years. But guess what? They died. Eventually they died. They, this bread didn't give life. But here, now, the bread from heaven is the bread that comes down which anyone can eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I give for the world. He's pointing to the crucifixion. And this is like throwing them for a loop. They're like, wait a minute, he wants us to eat his flesh? What's going on? And they're like grappling, like we know he doesn't really mean eat, like bite his fingers or something. We know that's not going on. But what does he mean? How does, what does it mean that he gives us his flesh to eat? So he goes on to kind of help them. He says, very truly, again, that emphasis Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. I mean, it's kind of weird language, right? You have no life in you. But whoever does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him for the last day. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, this over and over and over again, remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he's saying... Just like God the Father is there and I am putting my trust in him, I'm surrendering to him and I'm doing only what he does and I have life, says it's the same thing with me. When you look to me, when you trust me and surrender your ways to me, you will have the same satisfaction that I have in the Father. It's through surrender. It's this metaphorical language. Have you noticed verse 40 and verse 54 are almost exactly the same? except for the metaphorical language. They both say, the person who does this, uh, I will give them eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. One says, looks to the Son and believes in him. The other says, eats my flesh, drinks my blood. It's a metaphor of what he's already said, trying to shock them into seeing it. So he's pointing him to himself, saying, as we look to him for satisfaction, as we trust him and surrender to him, this metaphorical idea of feeding on him, he will satisfy us. So this is the climax. This is the tension of the story. And it raises the question, will you trust that Jesus is the bread of life who offers satisfaction to your soul? Not just a little bit, but abundant satisfaction that lasts for here and now, but also into eternity. He's not saying a life of comfort or ease, but he's talking about satisfaction of your soul. Will you surrender wholeheartedly to him? That's the weight of the passage and the promise that when you do, you'll be satisfied. So now Jesus, or John, begins to wrap it up in the resolution. What's going to happen? Will we listen to the words of the one God sent and surrender and trust, or will we walk away Look at what happens in verse 60. Hearing it, and note, this is disciples. These people have been following him. They've been trying to learn from him. They've been trying to grapple with who he is. All these disciples, they start saying, 
This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Who can accept this idea of total surrender? That's not what I signed up for. I like the healing and the bread and the fish. And so Jesus is aware they're grumbling about it, and he says, does this offend you? Does this teaching offend you? What is going to happen when you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He's pointing to the cross. He says, if this is offensive, wait till you see your Messiah hanging on a tree cursed by God. How will you handle that offense if my teaching offends you? And he says, my words are full of spirit and full of life, and yet there are still some who will not believe. They will not trust They will not surrender, even though they've been following him. They've been listening to him, seeking him. They will not surrender and trust. Jesus lets them know it's unqualified allegiance, unconditional surrender. If you're going to follow and if you're going to be satisfied, your level of satisfaction directly is in line with your level of surrender. Jesus refuses to be a tool to be used. He's not going to be controlled to give us whatever we want, whenever we want it. He's not a meal ticket. He's not a free pass for a life of ease and comfort. He's not a political candidate so we can have a society that we can control and feel comfortable in and get our way. He is I am. He is the bread of life. He is limitless, eternal, creator God, the bread of life that satisfies us. And he says, we can take all of Jesus, all of his commands, all of his promises, all of his warnings, or take none of it. Unconditional surrender is where satisfaction is found. Look at the result in, chapter, in verse 66. From this time, many of those disciples turned back and no longer followed him. We've seen this. For years, I've been on, at Christian Challenge for like 26 years on staff. And we see people in these seats that seem to be walking with God, that seem to want God, that seem to listen to God. But when things don't turn out the way they want, or when things get hard, or when there's a, something that pushes on their worldview, they say, no, not following you anymore. And that's what these people do. And surrendering everything was too much. They found this teaching, this call to surrender was intolerable. And offensive. They wanted to follow as long as it was comfortable. They wanted to follow as long as he gave them what they wanted. But he would not meet their demands. And they walked away. So I want you to think. And think seriously. Are there teachings of Jesus that offend you? That push on your worldview, And you say, I'm going to follow Jesus but not there. You got to grapple with this text. He wants all of you, and you need all of him. So there's no middle ground. Do you find things intolerable or offensive? Do you say, I'll follow except here? Are you one of these people? Jesus is going to put a fork in your road, and he's going to say, Are all your chips in, or are you out? You've got to decide. And these disciples are like, you called my bluff, 
I'm out. Can't go there. So then Jesus looks at the 12 in verse 67, the, the disciples, and he says, you guys want to leave too? I mean, you can kind of hear this loneliness, this longing in his question. Do you guys want to leave too? I mean, all these people are walking away that he'd been close to. And Peter answers him. He says, Lord, this is hard, this is hard teaching, but where are we going to go? Where else are we going to go to be satisfied you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe. We've come to trust. We've come to surrender. We know you're the Holy One of God. This is hard. But what's the other option? Peter says, we're all in. The little chips we got, we're going to put them in. And they surrender. Even when it's hard. Even when they don't understand. Even when things are confusing. And this passage is... Um, really been powerful in my own story. Um, several years ago, just my life was really getting turned upside down, things personally, relationally, vocationally, kind of everything I'd been thinking about, everything I'd been thinking was real, was getting flipped upside down, relationships were kind of getting fractured, um, things I'd been putting my hope in, all these things. It's like every area was kind of getting messed up all at the same time. I was confused. I was in pain. I wasn't sure if I could trust God. I didn't even know if God was real for a time. I didn't know if I was his child for a time. And I was struggling. Like, I wasn't praying. I was trying to get in the Bible. And I remember driving in the car with my wife. And she knew I was struggling. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. This isn't the road I wanted to walk. This is confusing. I'm in pain. I don't know what to do. But I know I can't walk away. What do I do? I've seen people walk away, and I saw what it did. I didn't want to do that. I had tried everything else for satisfaction, and it just fell flat. And so I just determined, like Peter, this is really hard. I'm confused. I'm angry, I'm hurt, but where else am I going to go? And so I had to make a choice. Am I going to start trusting and obeying in small things? So that's what I did. I remember reading a verse in 1 Timothy. First of all, I command every, men everywhere to pray, and I was struggling to pray. And so I was like, okay, God, I'm going to obey even if I don't know that you're real right now, even if I don't know that you're listening, even if I don't feel genuine, even if... I just don't understand. I'm going to choose to trust what you say and pray. And that just began this heart of surrender again, a refreshing surrender. And slowly, God began to renew my heart and to satisfy my soul. It's very disorienting. So this is very real. This moment will hit you if it hasn't already. Jesus will put a fork in your road. And he's going to ask you, will you follow when it's hard? Will you feed on me and trust me when it's hard, when you're confused, when you don't understand? Will you come to me for life? And he promises that he will give overflowing satisfaction when we do. Did that happen the first day I did that? No. But over time, satisfaction was coming. 
My, my hero, Hudson Taylor, Jody Pribble, hit me up with this quote. I forgot about it. It's a great quote. But he says, the real secret of an unsatisfied life lies too often in an unsurrendered will. So examine your life. Are you unsatisfied? Maybe there's some surrender that needs to happen. I want to tell you, Jesus' teaching is going to challenge you. It's going to push on your worldview. It's not always going to be what you want, and it won't be easy, but he is always faithful, and he is always good, and he's the bread of life if we'll feed on him. I'm going to have the worship team come up, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions to think about where you are in the story. And so as you think about the characters in this story, I want you to think about where you are. So first of all, it's like, are you a curious seeker? You know, are you just, are you here just kind of checking Jesus out, kind of seeing what he's like, if he's trustworthy? If that's you, you're in a great place. Jesus is not demanding you to surrender everything right now without knowing who he is. It's kind of like dating, right? The first time you meet somebody, you don't go marry him. You want to figure out, like, are they trustworthy, you know? I want to marry an axe murderer or something, you know? Are they trustworthy? And so that's what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you to seek after him. Look at his words. Does it, do his actions match up with his words? Is he trustworthy, worthy of your surrender? If that's you, keep seeking. Keep asking Jesus to show you who he is. That was my prayer way back in the dorms. God, show me who you are. I need to know who you are. Second question, are you a sign chaser? Are you a sign chaser? Are you following Christ to get something? Are you going buzz to buzz to buzz, sign to sign, wanting the next meal ticket, wanting the next thing from him? If that's you, it's time to repent and surrender. Let the signs point you to who he is and surrender. Are you a sign demander? Have you drawn the line in the sand and said, God, if you don't do this, I'm out? My question to you is, if you're out, where are you going to go? There is no one, there is nothing that will satisfy you like Jesus, period. Where are you going to go if he doesn't meet your demands? So I want to challenge you to go to Jesus with humility. Be honest. And he'll be gracious. Maybe like those people in the story, they're like, okay, what's the work we got to do? Maybe you guys are thinking, I've got to work and I'm so tired of trying to do the right thing all the time. And it's just, I'm running hard and I keep failing and I can't do enough. If that's you, Jesus says, hey, look, the work is to trust me. I already did the work. Trust me and surrender. Stop striving. And then the last is, are you a true disciple? Maybe you've got questions, maybe you're struggling, but you're feeding on Jesus, and you're just seeking him, and you're like, I'm going to trust and obey even when it doesn't make sense. And my word to you is just hang on, keep pursuing him, keep feeding. Let me pray, and we'll worship together. Lord, thank you that you are the eternal, self-sufficient, existing God and that you are the bread of life, and that you look on us, weak, broken people, and you say, I want to satisfy you. You can't give me anything that I don't have, but I want to give you everything you don't have.
Just surrender, trust, and feed on me for life. We thank you that you are that kind of God. God, I pray for all these groups of people that, God, we would move toward you, that we would trust you, that we would repent. And if there's an area of life that you're putting your finger on right now, I pray that that person would surrender and say, God, help me to trust you. If they have a demanding heart, I pray they'd say, God, would you let me unclench my fist and trust you whether you meet this need or not? If life is confusing and upside down, I pray that they would say, God, give me grace to trust. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us personally. Amen.